as a lamb. What's more, a lamb that's had its throat cut. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus has four hoofs. He had two hands and two feet. He's still got two hands and two feet in his resurrection body. He's not a lamb. He's a person, but he's pictured as a lamb, and we understand that that's a symbol. It symbolizes the fact that like the Old Testament sacrificial lambs, he was slain in our place, and so on and so on the symbolism goes. We're going to see that over and over again this morning, uh, particularly the way numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. They are almost always symbolic, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Fortunately, we have some help in understanding the symbols of Revelation, and the help comes from the Old Testament. Uh, Almost everything that John records has some uh, basis in Old Testament prophetic imagery, and those Old Testament symbols help us understand the ones in Revelation. Though the symbols of Revelation are not just limited to what the Old Testament symbols were, they are rooted there. So, last comment by way of reminder. Let's, Let's remind ourselves where we've been. Kind of understanding that we're about to look at something symbolic and to us, therefore, kind of weird. Where have we been? The last couple of chapters were a vision of heaven, and the symbol or the imagery we saw was that of a throne, a king's throne room with God, obviously the king, on the throne. And you remember in chapter 4, we saw these concentric circles of angels around the throne, and John, who is seeing this vision and sort of writing it from his perspective, that's our perspective as readers, is cut off from God because all these powerful angelic beings are in the way. And what's more, there was this thunder and this lightning and this fire and this huge sea, this roiling, tumultuous ocean that was between him and God. He couldn't get to God, and that was the problem. The big drama of chapter 4 is who was going to open this scroll that John saw in his vision in God's right hand, and his, that scroll represented God's purposes for the earth. Now remember that Revelation was written to Christians in the first century and every century afterwards too. But the original audience was Christians at the end of the first century. These are Christians that had lived through the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, and they were facing or were soon about to face the persecution under, I believe it was Domitian, if I've got my uh, Roman era history correct. They were at a situation where a lot of very powerful forces were arrayed against Christians and made life for Christians very difficult. And they questioned, is God in charge? I'm suffering for my faith. If Jesus is a king, why are his followers suffering? And so when they see that scroll, God's purposes are unopened. It looks like God's not in control and his will is not taking place on the earth. But then the chapter 5 vision centers on Jesus pictured as both a ruling lion and a slain lamb. He is the one who is worthy to take that scroll and break the seven wax seals that sealed it up and execute God's purposes on the earth. God will rule and he will reign on the earth. That led us into chapter 6, the last chapter we saw, which was the breaking of the first six seals of this scroll. And we saw that with each seal broken, there was an image of God sending judgments on a sinful earth. And we argued that those are to be understood as things happening throughout history, since, again, the book of Revelation was written to encourage suffering Christians in the first century. It very likely had to make sense of their world and what they were experiencing. Now, that's what leads us right into this morning's passage in chapter 7. We would expect, if this is just a strict chronology of historical events, we would expect the chapter 7 vision to be the breaking of the seventh and final seal of this scroll, right? We got through the first six, here comes number seven. But we don't actually get that. We don't get the breaking of the seventh and final seal until chapter eight. We'll talk about that next Sunday. 
In the meantime, we got chapter 7, which consists of two visions, and they are kind of sandwiched in between the breaking of the sixth seal and then the breaking of the seventh and final seal. And the reason is because both of these visions are designed to communicate one thing. So as we move into Revelation 7, I'm just going to give you the point of the whole sermon right now, and then you can tune me out for the rest of the... No, don't do that, please. But, but here's the point of the whole chapter. Here's the point of the whole sermon this morning, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack this. It is simply this. These, both these visions are designed to communicate one thing. God's promise to preserve the faith of his people through the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world. Let me say that again. That's important. That's what the whole thing is about. Both these visions are God's promise to sustain the faith of his people through the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world. God will see his people through to eternity, through very difficult circumstances, because we live in a sin-cursed world that is being judged even now by God and will be ultimately judged by God one day. He will see his people through to eternity. This is the main message of chapter 7. So that leads us to these two visions. These visions, uh, the first one is of this 144,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel, and some things are said there. The second vision is of a great multitude. We'll take each of them in turn. Now, there's there's much, so much here. We're obviously not going to have time to cover all of it. Uh, We're going to fly over this uh, relatively quickly. We're going to point out a few things on the way without dwelling on them, just enough to kind of catch the flow so that we can bring this home and see how it impacts the lives of Christians even today. If you have additional questions, which I'm sure you will, Show up Wednesday night. That's what our Revealing Revelation class on Harvest Wednesdays is all about. You can ask those questions there. First vision, what happens? Verses 1 through 3. We see these angels who are holding back the four winds. That's all symbolic language of judgment, basically. And we know that that's judgment because later on uh, it says, in fact not very much later, um, in verse, um, the end of verse 2, it says, He called aloud to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the earth and the sea. So when the Bible talks about these angels holding back the four winds, the idea is that God has sent these angels to, be, uh, to execute his judgment. That's a very common motif in apocalyptic literature. And yet he says to these angels, Hold on, wait a minute, wait, 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 stop. Before you get busy, before you start bringing my judgments on the earth, something has to happen first. And what has to happen first is that God's people need to be sealed with a mark on their foreheads. Don't harm, verse 3 says, the sea or the earth or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, Here's the, just a couple things to notice about what's going on here. First of all, uh, Dr. Greg Beale, a theologian, points out, I think very helpfully, that this is a sort of stepping back. Chapter 7 kind of like occurs at the same time of chapter 6, as it were. You know, it's, it's like if you're reading a story, if you've ever read a novel, and, and some events are narrated, and then you reach a chapter break, and then the next chapter goes back to the beginning of those events and jumps over to another character and says, hey, while all this stuff was going on, we're going to show you what was going on with this other character over here. If you've ever read a story like that, that's kind of what's happening here in Revelation. Chapter 6 was the breaking of these six seals and the issuing of God's judgments on the earth. Now chapter 7 says, wait a minute, before we finish that picture... Let's go back and let's tell you what's happening with the people of God 
while God is issuing these judgments on the earth where his people are still living. Is there any hope for the people of God? Or are they just being judged too like everybody else? And so chapter 6 is going to take us back. God says, before the judgments get unleashed, we need to mark my people. Now, the other thing that Dr. Beale points out is that this is rooted in a vision that Ezekiel received, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 9. I see a lot of pins moving. I think that's great. If you're taking notes, write down Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 to 6. If you're not taking notes, take that note for me. You'll thank me later, okay? Ezekiel 9, verses 4, 5, and 6. Ezekiel had received an apocalyptic vision of God judging the city. And in Ezekiel's vision, the details are different, but you'll get the gist of it. It's the same. There's these six angels who are pictured actually almost as executioners. It's kind of a grim picture. It says they all have a lethal weapon in their hand, and God is about to send them in the city to kill everybody because there's been so much sin, so much evil, so much injustice. God is finally going to judge evil. He's going to punish evildoers. Everybody's going to die. But just before the six angels go in the city, they're told, hold it, stop, don't move. There's a seventh angel with them, and he doesn't have a weapon in his hand. He has a writing kit. He's got an inkwell and a quill. And he's, the, the six angels are told to chill out and stay off on the side until the seventh angel goes through the city and puts a mark on the forehead of every righteous person in the city. Apparently, there's not many of them, but there's a few. And so he says, go mark those guys. And then after he's done marking, then God tells the six angels, all right, go in and kill everybody except the ones who have the mark on their foreheads. That was another image. It's a symbol. But of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you recognize that both of those symbolic images are rooted in the historical fact of the Exodus and the original Passover back in the book of Exodus, which was not a symbol. It was actually a historical event where God told his people to put the the, uh, blood of a sacrificial lamb over the doorposts of their house before he sent an angel in to inflict judgment on the households of the Egyptians for their opposition to God. And every household that had the blood, the angel would pass over. And so God's people were marked by the blood of that lamb and they uh, had God's judgment pass over them. Do you see the, the repeated theme in the Bible? That's what John's vision is picking up here in Revelation 7, okay? Judgment's coming, but God's people are going to be marked first. Now, let me just mention one other thing about this business of marking God's people or sealing them. Um, This is the first time we've run into this in Revelation, but it's not the last. This is going to become a recurring motif, a recurring theme throughout the book of Revelation, that people are marked or sealed with a mark, and that has implications. God's people, and so I just want to introduce it now. We don't have time to develop it, but that's okay. We'll get there as we go through Revelation. Let me just introduce it now so we know what to look for. God's people receive God's mark, and that identifies them as belonging to God, which on the one hand, shelters them or preserves them from God's judgment. But as we go on, we're going to see that it opens them up to Satan's wrath and his judgment. So they have to face opposition from Satan. On the other hand, Satan's followers are likewise sealed or marked. And we'll see that over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. And if you have Satan's mark, you are preserved from Satan's wrath but that opens you up to God's wrath. 
So as theologian D.A. Carson uh, puts it, I'm kind of paraphrasing him here, but he helpfully summarizes it this way. He's like, everybody's got one mark or the other, according to the theology of the book of Revelation. You either got God's mark or you got Satan's mark. And the only question is, whose wrath do you want to face? Unfortunately, you will face some wrath. There will be difficulty. There will be trial. There will be pain in this sin-cursed world until God makes it all right. And Satan's wrath can be a pretty ugly and difficult thing for a little while. But God's wrath is forever. So you don't want to face God's wrath. You want, to face, you want to get God's mark and face Satan's wrath. But this theme is going to occur over and over again. That's enough on that. This is the first time we're seeing it. Okay, second thing about this vision. What's going on? Second thing, God's people are being sealed before judgment. Second thing, who are these people? 144,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, I want to acknowledge right up front that a lot of really good, solid biblical Christians interpret this group of people in different ways, and that's totally fine. There are different ways to understand it. Um, Having said that, I'm going to give you the right answer here in just a second. (coughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I am convinced of the truth of what I'm about to say, but I recognize that there is some difficulty. Everybody except the most woodenly literalist person recognizes that the number 144,000 is a symbolic number. Uh, it's not a literal number. It almost can't be. And, and actually, there's a lot of reasons to take it as symbolic. And it's in a book full of symbolic numbers. That's just how um, uh, D.I. Carson says that, that's, that's just how apocalyptic literature works. To try to take it literally is just to misunderstand the kind of writing um, that we're reading. Not to mention the fact that the symbolism is pretty common. Uh, 144,000, for you math whizzes, is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Yes? 12 times 12 and then times 1,000. This is a very common way that apocalyptic literature worked back then. It seems weird to us because we don't think this way, we don't write this way, but this is what they did back then. Uh, 12 and 12 are going to become a common motif throughout the book of Revelation for the people of God. The symbolism is probably the 12 tribes of Old Testament Israel, who were the people of God in the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles who are the foundation of the New Testament church, meaning the whole of God's people. And then the 10 times 10 times 10 thing is something that happens repeatedly in apocalyptic literature to just emphasize fullness or completeness. So if you've got 144,000, my understanding is that this represents the full, complete picture of all of God's people, saved and redeemed. Now, this is consistent with, uh, I don't have time to get into all the pros and the cons and all the different views. Again, if you want to do some of that, show up on Wednesday, okay? Um, But let me just say this. It's consistent with the New Testament teaching that the church is true Israel. It is the fulfillment or continuation of Israel, the people of God, which is something that's taught many places in the New Testament. Uh, And it's also consistent, as I mentioned, with the way that numbers are used, not only in Revelation, but with apocalyptic literature in general. Uh, One final note here, D.A. Carson actually points out that to interpret these literally, as as some people do, as a a future group of literal 144,000 Jewish believers, because it says they're from the tribes of Israel, so if we're going to take that literally, that's problematic because it says that the 144,000 are made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Problem being, the 12 tribes of Israel no longer exist as ethnically distinct people groups. Uh, Carson points out that the genealogical records that were so important to Old Testament Jews to be able to say, hey, I'm from the the tribe of Judah or I'm from the tribe of Simeon because I can trace my lineage all the way back to that old patriarch. All the records that proved those lineages were destroyed in the first century when Jerusalem was overrun uh, by the Romans. So the records no longer exist. 
Uh, from that point on, Carson says, no Jew could prove his or her ethnic lineage and trace it back to a specific tribe. But it's not just that the human records are lost, as if like, well, we don't know what tribe they're from, but God knows. The problem is that since then, you've had 2,000 years of intermarriage. Dozens and dozens and dozens of generations of Jewish people not only marrying non-Jewish people, but Jewish people marrying other Jewish people from other tribes. And so that the tribal lines get so mixed up that by this point in history now in our modern day, they don't even really exist anymore as ethnically distinct tribes. So even if God were to come back today and try to find 12,000 people from the tribe of Asher, you can't do it because they're not, they don't ethnically exist that way anymore. So what's the point? The image is one of God marking his people from protection, from punishments that he's about to unleash on a sinful world. I've shared a few thoughts for a couple minutes about how to interpret this. Let's talk about how to apply it. What does this mean? How is this supposed to encourage Christians? What do we do with this? What's God's message to us here? His message is one of protecting his people from the punishments that he's about to unleash on a sinful world. Uh, Greg Beale notes that this, of course, is not the promise that they will be immune from bad things. The New Testament, the Old Testament, both the whole Bible is consistent in teaching exactly the opposite. God's people will suffer. All the Apostle Paul says who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself told his followers, the world hated me, they're going to hate you if you follow me. Prepare for that. Understand that that's going to happen. No, Dr. Beale says this isn't about uh, immunity from painful circumstances. Well, then what is it? What kind of protection is he talking about here? Well, he's certainly talking about protection from his own final judgment. But there also here is a very strong promise of preserving the faith of a Christian through the painful realities of living in a sin-cursed world and suffering the wrath of Satan, whatever form that may take. You may recall way back at the beginning of this series, I said one of the three main purposes of the book of Revelation is to urge Christians at all times to persevere in their faith no matter what. Pay whatever cost you have to pay in order to honor Jesus. It will work out well in the end. This chapter is doing that. God is promising, I will sustain your faith if you stay faithful to me no matter what the cost. I almost have the image of it's like, it's like a spotter in weightlifting. And you ever messed with free weights at the gym? You know, you go get on the bench, you're going to do your bench press, you got your like, you know, 45-pound bar or whatever, and, you know, if you're like me, you're stacking three, 400 pounds of plates on the side so that you can... <laughs> hey, why are you all laughing? Isn't it a joke? Okay. That might have been a little bit of an exaggeration. Uh, but, you know, you're putting whatever weight you can handle, which is probably a little more than me. And, you know, you, you get down there, you get down, you do your bench press. Well, if, if I want to do, like, you know, three sets of ten, and I'm really pushing myself with the weight, I get to the third set, and, of course, by number six, ooh, uh, I'm starting to slow down. <laughs> number seven, oh, boy, my arms are getting tired, my muscles are getting a little weak, and I'm kind of shaking a little bit. And I'm like, uh, all right, I got seven up. I got three more to do, and now I got a decision to make, right? And I better make it quick. <laughs> now, at that point, if I'm by myself... I might go, eh, I don't know. This, if, if, I, if I come down one more time and try to push up and I just don't have enough gas left in the tank, I'm going to be in trouble, which is at least pretty embarrassing because I'm going to make a mess and everybody in the gym is going to laugh at me, which they're probably doing anyway, but at least they're keeping it to themselves. Um, or worse, like it could be a safety issue, right? So I may just decide, ah, I'm not going through. I'm just going to stop there. But if I have a spotter, a spotter is somebody that comes up. One of my buddies comes up and he stands uh, over me and he waits to look for that sign when I'm really weak. And 
a good spotter won't ever touch the bar until he absolutely has to. But he'll say, all right, come on, push one more. And he'll kind of put his hands right under the bar, ready to grab it, but he won't touch it. He'll let me do all the work. But if I ever just say like, ah, I'm done, I can't do it, he'll grab the bar, help me pull it up and get it back on the rack so that I'm safe. Now, here's what a spotter does if you're the one lifting weights. It gives you the courage to push yourself a little harder, doesn't it? Because if I'm by myself, I'm going, I don't know if three more is a really good idea. I could get in trouble here. But if my buddy's there, I'm saying, I'm going for it. Because I know that even if I run out of gas in the tank, if my strength ends, he's there to help pull me up and get me out of that situation. In a sense, that's what God's promise here is like. He says, for those who truly have put their faith in me, not just those that are talking Christianese and going to church and saying God stuff. I mean, people that have really put their faith in me and they're really having to pay a price for it. If they get to the place where they say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if it's worth it. He says, I promise I'll be there to spot you. I will carry you through. I was tempted to title this morning's service sermon, uh, God is my spotter. But that was so cheesy, I would never say that in public, so I didn't do that. God says, I will be there. I will carry you through if your faith is genuine, even beyond what you think you can handle. Stay faithful to me. I will see you through to eternity, and it will pay off. Is that important? Is it important to the Afghani Christians that we prayed for earlier? We have brothers and sisters in Christ alive in the world right now, today, the same planet we live on who are facing the threat of actually an honor killing, not just being ostracized or rejected by their family, but potentially the threat of life and limb if they don't, if, if they recant their, if they don't recant their faith in Christ. What is God's promise to them? I will see you through. We need to pray for them. How do you pray for them? You pray for them the way we prayed for them earlier. First of all, you pray that that, that their lives would be spared. You pray that God would get them out of that, that they wouldn't have to die. But we also recognize this. You pray two things. First is that they'd be safe. Secondly, you pray that if in God's sovereignty he chooses not to save their lives, if he chooses to number them among the saints in Revelation chapter 5 who were killed for their faith, and whom God said, the number of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to be killed for faith in me is not yet complete, and if they are part of that number, then you pray that they would have the faith to sustain to the end and to love an eternity with God more than they love a life in this world without him. That's the call of the gospel. And God's promise is, no matter what happens to you, I will see you through if you are putting your faith in me. That's the promise of these visions. And that leads us to the second vision, which is a greatly encouraging one in light of that heavy and real and powerful promise of the first vision. This vision of this great multitude, people from every tribe, tongue, language, every nation, language that very clearly echoes the end of Revelation in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Because I believe what we're seeing here in this vision is a foretaste of that what's going to be repeated at the end of the uh, the book in more detail. This is clearly a group of people from every nationality, every ethnicity, every race who has given their lives to Christ. And John now sees an image and a picture of the redeemed people of God enjoying the throne room of heaven, enjoying eternal bliss in the presence of God himself. So in other words, I would go with those Christians who understand that these two different visions are two different ways of looking at the exact same group of people. This is all of the people of God. This is all Christians. But they're two sides of the same coin. 
The reason they're different is that the first vision is sort of a vision of the people of God before they go through the suffering. Remember, the winds are held back, and God says, I'll mark you and I'll preserve your faith before the judgment comes. Now, the second vision is a vision of the people of God after they have been sustained by God through the suffering, and they're now home. After God has kept his promise, it's a picture of, yes, the payoff is worth it. Three brief comments. Who are they? What are they doing? And what are they promised? Well, first, who are they? We've already talked about that. This is people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. This is all Christians for in, in eternity, for eternity, praising God. That seems to be the natural reading of that passage, especially with the echoing language at the end of the book. That's who they are. Secondly, what are they doing? Notice they are praising God for the fact that he saved them. These are the people who persevered. These are the people who did it all. These are the people that are done with the race. And you notice they're not high-fiving each other. Good job, Johnny. Way to go, Sam. You didn't quit. Good job, Susan. Way to just hang in there. You did a great job. You know, what you know who they're high-fiving? They're high-fiving God. <laughs> Praising God himself for the fact that he saved them. Verse uh, 10, they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know what they're saying? The only reason we are here is because of Him. He sustained us like He promised He would. And by the way, note where they are standing. They are standing all around the throne. Let me point out a couple of things. First of all, if you just turn uh, back to the very end of chapter 6, for some of you, that's a turn of a page. Chapter 6, verse 17. It's a picture of God's judgment and those who are suffering the judgment of God, evildoers who are getting their just desserts, as it were. God in his judgment is so fearsome, they conclude with this statement, the great day of the wrath of God and the Lamb has come, and who can stand? Who could stand before God's judgment? Chapter 7 is an answer to that question. We, where we see a myriad of Christians from all tribes and tongues and nations and languages and ethnicities standing before the throne of God. Why? Because of them? No. Because of him. And by the way, there's also echoes all the way back to chapter 4. You remember John was standing when he first saw heaven's throne room and he couldn't get to God? There were all these concentric rings of, of, of angels and, and, and elders and living creatures and there was this storm and there was this turbulent sea and it all served to keep John separate from God. It's like people, we can't, people can't get to God in chapter 4. But now because Jesus has done what he has done, what we see here in chapter 7 is this vision of people who are just right around the throne along with all those angels. They're just part of the furniture of heaven now. They just belong there. They're just what you see when you get there. They belong. They have a place. How did they overcome that insurmountable distance from chapter 4? By now we get the, the message, don't we? They didn't. They didn't. Jesus Christ did. That leads us to the third thing. Who are they? Where are they? What are they promised? What are they promised? Verses 15 through 17 are a litany of eternal, final salvation, blessed eternal life promises. Much of the language, again, echoes Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the very end of the book, because this is picturing, I believe, the same thing. That's why the language is so similar. 
They stand before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. They are promised that they will be sheltered by God for all eternity. Uh, he who sits, verse, the end of verse 15, he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. By the way, there are echoes of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10 here, where God promises his people that one day he will shelter them from the scorching heat of the sun. And that's metaphorical language, that's symbolic language. He's not saying he's going to give them a parasol. He's saying that all the pain and the difficulty of life in this world, one day he will shelter them from it. Well, now here John is getting a vision of God's people being sheltered from all pain and evil because they're in his presence. He promises them no more crying or pain, verse 16. uh, They will not hunger, they will neither thirst. The sun shall not strike them. And he will, uh, the end of verse 17, wipe every tear away from their eyes. An exact promise repeated later in the book. And by the way, that also has echoes back to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, where God again, through an Old Testament prophet, promises his people one day, I personally will wipe away all of your tears. Because of who I am, your joy will be made full. These people are experiencing that eternal blessedness with God. And they are promised everlasting life. He will guide them to eternal springs of living water where every need is met and every joy is complete. We've covered a lot really fast. I like to pull back as we kind of sum up and say, what is the the message of this? What are we supposed to take away from this? These two visions, I believe, are two visions of the same thing. God's people preserved through the difficulties of following God in a sin-cursed world and seen through by God to eternal joy. One vision is the people of God before the judgment comes, being sealed and marked. The other is a vision of the people of God after the judgment has come, victorious because of Christ. He promised to preserve their faith no matter what cost is extracted, either directly or indirectly, and he does. He comes through on that promise for his people. But notice that at the center of all of this is Jesus Christ. You see that not only in this chapter, but through the whole course of this narrative so far. There's a lot of details, 144,000 people and, and bizarre symbols and images and what do we make of all this? And those things are all important, but you know what? They're also all sort of peripheral. They're like they're out on the, the, the rim of a wheel and all these spokes are leading into one hub. And you know what's at the center of that hub? It's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus himself. Remember, the joyful, uh, eternally blessed people of God are not high-fiving one another. They're not calling attention to their victory. They're calling attention to Christ's victory. Now look at how verse 17 ends this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne, taking us back to chapter 5, will be their shepherd. That's a total contradiction in terms, is it not? What a jarring image. A lamb is a shepherd. Okay, a lamb is a sheep, and shepherd is a sheep herder. Sheep get shepherded. They don't shepherd. Sheep don't herd sheep. Sheep need herding. That's why you have shepherds. And so as we've seen over and over again in John's writing, he will use symbols and images, but he mixes them all up, and he does it on purpose. Because Jesus is both a lamb in the sense that he is a sacrifice for our sins, just like Old Testament sacrificial lambs were, 
In that sense, he is like a lamb, but he is also the great shepherd of his sheep, his flock, his people, you and I. The lamb is the shepherd. There's a cognitive dissonance there that's supposed to make us step back and say as readers, that doesn't make any sense because it engages our imaginations and it makes us think about what? About Jesus, about who he is, about what he does, about what he means to all who put their faith in him. That's the joyful paradox of our Savior. The one who suffered deeply, especially on the cross, is the one who can shelter you from suffering forever. He is both. The one who knew profound pain is the one who will wipe every tear away from the eye of those who put their faith in him. And the one who endured the hell of having God the Father turn his back on him when he was on the cross is the very one who will lead you and I to springs of living water before the face of God, in the presence of God, without any fear of God ever turning his back on us, but being loving toward us, never to fear being abandoned from him. What's the point of the book of Revelation? We've seen it already many times. We will see it many more. It is the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and Jesus as the fulfillment of centuries worth of God's promises to bring about a righteous world where life dwells for all eternity. Friends, that's the promise of this book. But it's a promise made to those who place their full faith in Christ. They rely on him and what he has done because of who he is. They don't rely on themselves to be the good person or go to church or do the right thing or do what God wants me to do so that he'll let me in. We are the people who don't high-five ourselves or one another. We high-five Jesus Christ because he's the one who's done it all. And if you and I as men and women can come to Jesus and say, you are the Savior, you are both the Lamb who is slain and the Lion. You are both the sacrificial sheep and you are the great shepherd. I bring nothing to the table. I want to put my entire life and my entire eternity, I'm banking it all on you. I'm putting it in your hands. That's what it means to repent and become a Christian. And if you do, you have God's promise. Not that things will get easier for you, actually just the opposite. In the short term, they'll probably get worse for you. But you've got God's promise that no matter how heavy that weight is, he will be there to catch a failing faith and to give you the grace to preserve in your trust until the end, up to and including any form of suffering or even death itself, to help us fall so much in love with the glory of Jesus and eternal life with God that we would want it even more than temporal life without God. Because life with God is so much better. And all that glory goes to him. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we are addressing 